Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name is Daniel Markin, and today on the program, I have with me Bruce Cleminger. Bruce is the president of EFC, or Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, a Christian organization that look at equipping churches to think through all things politics and religion and faith and how those sort of things work together. He does a lot of work in Ottawa as well. So we have a long, great discussion on how to live in Canada and live in an increasingly political society and also be faithful Christians. So really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name's Daniel Markin, and today I'm joined by Bruce Cleminger. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I want you to introduce yourself to our audience. You know, we got listeners from across Canada, but introduce a little bit about yourself, a little bit about the work and ministry that you're currently doing. Sure. Uh, I am president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. We're a national association of evangelical denominations, ministry organizations, higher education institutions, local churches. So we have about 47 denominations, so pretty broad swath of evangelicalism included, you know, from you know, Pentecostal, Charismatic, through to you know, Baptist Reform. And we have about 33, 34 higher education institutions, including 13 seminaries from across Canada, and a whole a number of ministry organizations that would include domestic-oriented, international-focused, uh, campus ministry, inner-city work, and so on and then local churches also belong. So we spend a lot of our time uh, facilitating conversations, uh, research projects, activities amongst our affiliates. We publish a magazine called Faith Today and, and a magazine called LIM, Love is Moving. And then we also do a lot of work in Ottawa on law and public policy. So we regularly appear in the courts and before parliamentary committees on a whole range of issues. So that's what I do professionally. My background is in actually political philosophy and live in the Ottawa Valley, about an hour outside of Ottawa, my wife and my two daughters. Wow. And with your background in political philosophy, what was your original you know, desire with that sort of background? Like, was it to get into politics or was it always to try and bridge the gap between politics and, and, and your Christian organization? Like, uh, you know, because there's many options you could go with, with a background like that. Uh, actually, at, at, particularly uh, in university, studying economics and history, and two shaping influences on me were, one was Francis Schaeffer, and the other was A.W. Tozer. So I'd read A.W. Tozer devotionally, and I'd read Schaeffer to understand culture. And his, uh, he wrote a book called um, How Should We Then Live? So as, uh, as a Christian living in an increasingly secular environment, secular culture, uh, what does the gospel require of us? How then do we work out our faith and fear and trembling? In a, in a very, you know, religiously and culturally diverse society. And so that, that intrigued me as I went on in my studies, I narrowed that down to more the political side, the political dimension of how we live out our faith. And that brought me to EFC. I was hired on as a researcher for the then president, a guy named Brian Stiller. And then I became head of national affairs, moved to Ottawa to open up our office, and then we, where we, um, 
make submission to parliamentary committees and also intervene in, in court cases on everything from you know prostitution through to euthanasia, uh, religious freedom, educational issues, and so on. So that's how, and then I became president of EFC, so I get to continue to really sort through that calling of how should we then live and do so within the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, uh, collaborating with you know, all sorts of ministry leaders across Canada, asking the question, how do we bear faithful public witness in our contemporary society? Right. Quick question before I dive into a topic I want to chat with you about. And, you know, you could say we're going to get political. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, what would you say? So when you say intervening, what does that mean? Like intervening in court cases, you mentioned ones with uh, prostitution or, and I've chatted with one of your colleagues before we were talking about human trafficking, but what does that look like? Are you like a witness on the stand? Or are you providing research to the, to the case? How, how does that work? Uh, intervener status before a court, it's in the Latin, it's often referred to a friend of the court. So there's two parties contending about an issue. Let's say it's an individual versus uh, the government. So an individual is challenging the laws on assisted suicide euthanasia. And so it's it's their name versus the, the government. And then what we do is we apply to intervene as an interested party. And what we're if we're successful and we give reasons to the court why we have a vested interest in the outcome and the kind of arguments we want to bring to bear in the issue. And if we're granted, then we normally able to make a written brief and usually an oral submission before the court. So we're there because the court thinks that we have something to contribute to the argument to their understanding of the case. So we've done that over 70 times, I think more than 30 times at the Supreme Court level and the remainder at the lower court level, uh, leading often to cases going to the Supreme Court. Wow. So have you ever been standing in a case in the Supreme Court and what's that like? Uh, no, I'm not a lawyer, uh, so I help okay. act and guide. Uh, we use uh, outside legal counsel to do that. but. I've been every, well, including Zoom, I've pretty well been in every court case uh, at Supreme Court level that EFC has been involved in. So what would happen is that the lawyers for the one party, uh, the lawyer for the party, uh, say the person challenging the government's decision, will speak first, and then the interveners on their side will speak, and then the lawyer for the state or the government will argue, and then interveners behind them. So it's it, there's kind of a sequence to it. Uh, but it's been fascinating over the years to watch the the judges and you try to anticipate what they may decide based on their questions, and sometimes it's hard to tell. So sometimes they'll make it really difficult for lawyers who they actually agree with because they're trying to shore up their arguments that they'll make in their decision. Uh, sometimes they're absolutely silent and you have no idea what they're thinking. So it's uh, yeah, uh, quite a process, but it's in terms of bearing witness, it's doing so in a legal sphere. So the arguments we make, we build upon Biblical principles, principles we think that uh, should apply, uh, religious freedom, equality, conscience, whatever the argument is. And then we make those arguments, the lawyers we work with are all, all Christians. And so we make those arguments in the language of the court and using precedents from previous court decisions to argue our, to plead our case before the court. Wow. So let's get political then, because so often I've heard that we shouldn't cross religion and politics, right? There's a separation of church and state. And, and these are things that I've heard all around evangelicalism. And here you are leading an organization that is seeking to do both. And I want to get your perspective on how you balance those two things, because it sounds very much like you are using 
Christianity to influence politics and and you want politics to be influenced and and you know checked and balanced by Christianity that because I, I believe that the Christian worldview is the worldview that would bring about the most flourishing. However, oftentimes we'll say, and I, and I learned in my political sciences classes, we were always debating, can you actually check your religion at the door? Because you, you can say you don't, but then you walk in that door and everywhere you go, there you are, you know, with the witness of the Holy Spirit or someone else who, if they're a Muslim, right, that they have that worldview scattering around in their brain. So I want to hear your perspective on how you balance religion and politics. Okay, um, let me unpack that a bit. So I would make a distinction between church and state and faith and politics. So politics is a dimension of life as is faith, uh, whereas church and state refer to kind of more structural, they're kind of more organizations. So does the state have interest in what churches do? Yeah, we have building codes, fire codes. We have, you know, churches are required to follow, you know, employment contracts, you know, things set up by the state to ensure fairness. And likewise, I think churches have things to say to the state. So when the state's thinking about what does justice mean, what does human dignity mean, what does freedom mean, what does conscience mean, when you look at the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, there's section two, which deals with freedom and conscience, it deals with thought, opinion, belief, it deals with you know, freedom of assembly, etc. When you look at section seven of the Charter, uh, it talks about life, liberty, security of the person. Section 15 talks about equality. Well, although that language is all in the charter, but the charter itself doesn't tell you how to define equality or what life, liberty, security of the person means or what freedom of conscience or religion means. And so there, I think, on some of those points, churches, as other groups within civil society, have something to say to help the government, help the courts think through how to understand those terms and how to apply those terms for the benefit of all. So it's not just justice, doesn't mean just just for us, but it means justice for everyone. And so uh, that's where I think that the church has a legitimate role in, in speaking to governments, just as I think governments from time to time have a legitimate role in, in engaging with churches. But those are two kind of separate spheres that they overlap, and so there's interchange between the two. But again, in my mind, the church should not try to be a state. Uh, whenever the church has kind of got in bed with or aligned itself with any one political party, it's never worked out well for the church or for the political party or for the state in the long run. So I think we need to keep those distinctive and separate, though they do interact and engage. So a citizen, you can be a member of a church. You can also be a member of a political party, and that's legitimate. But I think we have to be careful where we're trying to recruit the church into becoming, you know, a, a bulwark for a particular ideology or political vision of life, or when the state itself decides to take on the task of a church and tries to foster civil religion or, you know, a set of values that everyone should belong to. So you got to keep those separate. Faith and politics, however, there again, as I said before, I'd argue there are dimensions of life. And so every politician has some faith dimension to them. Now, they could be completely pragmatic, which is usually a scary scenario because they only do what utility demands. But basically, most politicians I've met, you know, come with a set of values, set of principles. Uh, some are Christians, some are Jews, some are Buddhists, some are Sikhs, some are no particular religion at all, but they all come with a certain vision of life, a worldview, a comprehensive doctrine, whatever you want to call it in whatever literature you're reading. Uh, and so they bring that to bear into their politics. So you can't really separate faith from politics, whereas you can create a distinction between church and state. So usually the argument is about imposing your morality, 
Well, it's the state through the criminal code that imposes morality. So the criminal code, you know, tells us, you know, what is illegal. And, you know, if it's not in the criminal code, then it's not illegal, right? And, you know, some things are bad than others. Some things get five years, some things get 10 years, something is just a fine. And so it's a common project within uh, a democracy to determine what's in the criminal code, what's not. And that's usually where the big debates in parliament take place on is whether something should be illegal or not illegal. And so that is a moral code. And so we have an interest in making arguments about what should be in that moral code and how that should be understood, just as other groups in civil society would have that uh, interest as well. So that's how I decide. I say church and state, they need to be, they're separate institutions. Uh, I think commissioned by God to do different things and they do overlap and so they do intersect and they have a conversation dialogue one with another. Faith and politics, you really can't take faith out of politics because politics itself will be animated by some worldview, some perspective, some vision of life. Yeah. I, I think that distinction is really helpful because it, it, it speaks to this idea of church and state being structures and I think faith and politics being direction. And, and I think, yeah, like that the sphere of life is important to understand because we always see the caricature of the church in the United States with the, you know, like they'll have the big American flags and they'll, the pastor will go up there. I'm just using an example, but they'll be like, this is a Republican church, right? And we would say, that's well, that's not helpful. That's, that's a blatant example of crossing church and state, right? But what about when, because I, I tend to think that right now to speak out against our culture, I think as a, like from a biblical worldview, whether we like it or not, actually is a political move. And so how would you, you know, as you counsel churches who are trying to speak to a, a church that's living in a very secular world, the, the biblical statements they're making, you could argue are political statements. So how do you coach churches and the churches you're working through who are trying to think through, you know, balancing the return to church with after COVID-19? A lot of the stuff they say could be interpreted as political statements. And they would say, well, if you're, you know, if you're pushing for more reopening, that makes you more conservative. Therefore, you are, uh, you know, pushing that politic on me. Or if you're more, you know, you want to keep locked down, well, you're more liberal uh, and you, you, you shouldn't be pushing that politic on me. How have you been able to work with churches to, to balance that? Yeah. Uh, was, is the gospel political? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, the gospel, the good news, the evangel. In the Roman era, when a new emperor came to power, you know, the evangel was sent out, the gospel, the good news is proclaimed that there's a new sovereign in place, right? And so when Jesus, I mean, just the interaction with Jesus and Pilate, right? Is your kingdom of this world? Or, well, my kingdom is another world, but it has impact on this world. You know, the whole dialogue about what is truth. And, and so we, as Christians, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And that according to a number of gospel writers, that should take precedence over our being citizens in Canada. So, yeah, it's a, issues of sovereignty, of authority, and so it, it has a political dimensions. Uh, secondly, I'd just say that you alluded to you know, some churches in the U.S. being Republican churches and so on. Uh, that's where I think, actually, uh, Revenue Canada, believe, <laughs> I can say this, I think they've drawn a line quite well between what is partisan and what is not partisan. So as a, if a church is a charity in Canada, then you're not supposed to engage in partisan activity, which means you're not supposed to vote one politician over another or one party over another. And so I think that's good advice uh, because, again, I don't think the church, the gospel should be clearly aligned with any political ideology or political actor 
or political party. I think there needs to be that difference. But yeah, churches will, during election time, we encourage churches actually to talk about the issues that are the issues of the day that will probably be discussed in the campaign. You don't link that issue to any one political party or any one political uh, politician or candidate, but you can talk about euthanasia, you can talk about freedom of conscience, you can talk about a whole range of things because they, they have bearing on what's going on in our country politically. Uh, likewise, I've talked about interventions before the court. That could be seen as political activity. Uh, we also appear before parliamentary committees on things like human trafficking or euthanasia or prostitution. Again, we're commenting on a political issue of the day and we're giving advice, as it were, on how we think the law should be applied or what should be illegal, what should not be illegal. And so we are making kind of political pronouncements animated out of our Christian understanding and out of the principles we find in scripture. You can you can be political without being partisan. Maybe that's one way of saying it. But then the political is only one dimension of life. And there's other parts of life that we need to be speaking to as well. And so if your church is engaged in articulating and advocating and expressing the full gospel, then you're dealing with all dimensions of life, not just the political. If you get fixated on the political, I would ask the question, well, why? Why is that becoming so important that you're spending your time on that and other, other dimensions of life as well? Yeah, because obviously, and we encounter this too for uh, the church I'm a part of, we preach expositionally. And so as you move through a passage, right, as you move through, like, you know, if you're working through the Gospels and you get to that conversation with Jesus and Pilate, what? Well, that's a political conversation right there. So the, the scriptures, as you teach through them, will actually lead you to actually have to talk through those things. And I think to be faithful is to actually at least engage in all the topics uh, that the Bible is, uh, is bringing forth. Let me ask you this. You've brought up conscience uh, a few times, freedom of conscience. And I think that's a really relevant topic right now in our, in our world. And even just current events wise, you're in Ottawa. And I know right now there's a massive convoy of truckers in Ottawa right now. And one of the, the reasons that they're there is they're protesting mandates. And I believe it's under the, the freedom of conscience and, and security of, of the person. I'd love to hear some of your perspective on that, some of the stories that you're hearing, and how, as Christians, we should be thinking about this event, because it's quite a big event. I think a lot of people, you know, are, are noticing some of these things happening. I mean, if you were driving on the freeway, you might have seen, like, tons of people, even here in BC, on overpasses, right? So it's definitely taken the country by storm. There is, you know, worldwide people now paying attention to this. I'd love to get your perspective on how we should be thinking Christianly on this uh, and any sort of wisdom you could offer to that situation, how to think through this. It's also within the church. I mean, we did some polling, uh, we being the Evangelical Fellowship, did some polling right after the election. And we asked a number of questions on a variety of issues, including uh, COVID-19. And there we found that on some issues, like whether people should be required to get a vaccine in order to keep their job, or should employers, government or employers, you know, reasonably accommodate those who haven't been vaccinated, we're almost divided. I mean, this is 48 to 48 or 48 percent to 46 percent. On issues like should a passport required for someone to attend a religious service of, you know, people over a number of 10 people, 57 percent, yeah, our passport should be required. 37 percent said no. But on those other issues, it's literally evenly divided. So even within evangelicalism itself, there's deep, deep divisions on accommodation, on vaccine status, and so on. And, and our churches have had to navigate this. Now, 
EFC, we have a whole range of denominations that belong. There's probably about 7,000 individual congregations that belong to EFC. And only a handful, only a few actually publicly defied the restrictions. So most churches, you know, felt that uh, for the safety of the general population is how we show love to our neighbor. And we follow the restrictions, but within the churches, there's live debates about whether they, they should follow them or not, or then when the churches were allowed to open up, they open up fast enough, or were they too slow? Uh, those kind of things. So the broader disagreement within society about vaccine mandates, passports, restrictions, and so on, you know, is reflected in the church itself. And and the question always then, where do we find the point of unity? Are we going to let something like vaccine status, you know, harm or hurt the unity of the church? More broadly than in society, we have to realize that, again, there, there's deep disagreement, especially in the time of Omicron and as people start reflecting on the restrictions where they're necessary. And again, there's the, you you got the, the complete spectrum of uh, opinion about how quickly we should open up or how slowly we should open up or masking, non-masking, et cetera, et cetera. And so my concern uh, from where I sit with Evangelical Fellowship is how do we not let you know something like mandates and passports and masking undermine the unity which is ours in Christ as opposed, uh, we see in John 17. And how can we find out ways to rise above, in a sense, and remember that our, our, our unity is in Christ, and we are all citizens of a kingdom, and that we're all brothers and sisters? And then how do we foster civility, respect for one another with deep differences, and not become uncivil, and not push us apart whether we should be united? In terms of conscience, and currently in our society, when you talk about conscience, it's seen to be an individual thing. It's usually seen to be something argued by, by the, by the uh, dissenter. So my body, my choice is often a slogan used to, to affirm abortion, affirm uh, hasten death, assisted suicide, right? And then, and then, so how can those who advocate for abortion, you know, and then they're arguing in a sense for conscience rights for abortion and for uh, euthanasia, and then they get into vaccine mandates. And and my body, my choice means that you should be in favor of abortion, you should be in favor of euthanasia, you'd be in favor of vaccines. Well, how does vaccines link into abortion and, and, and euthanasia? You know, and yet the same rhetoric's being used in all three categories. I think what's going on there is that our society is a society of choice. And it's a society that champions uh, what often is called human autonomy. You see it in the court decisions, you see it in, in the language of cabinet ministers and, and others in our society. And the idea of autonomy is that we are autonomous individuals, that are, therefore we should be sovereigns for ourselves. We should be free to make the choices we wanna make and, and we need to push against anything that restricts or inhibits or infringes on our freedom to choose. Whether it's tradition, religion, whatever it happens to be, we push back against that which would restrict our choice. And the interesting thing is that usually consciousness is understood to be something that restricts choice. So it's not just uh, conscious means I'm free to choose something, but conscious means I, I'm free to not to do something, right? And so there's kind of this clash between conscience and choice. And I think what I see is that often those advocating for choice sometimes take a dim view of conscience because conscience is invoked when you're dissenting from the majority. So there's an interesting clash going on with our society between conscience and choice and, and what freedom means.
And again, when is the expression of conscience? Is, is it for personal good or is it for a social benefit? And often our, our government and other influences in our society are trying to maximize choice. So if you get vaccinated, you have more choices than not vaccinated. Abortion provides more choice than anti-abortion. Pro-euthanasia provides more choice than anti-euthanasia. And so I think that's where the dissenters, the nonconformists are usually seen to be ar ar arguing for conscience because conscience is, in a sense, in that way, can be seen to put a check on their freedom. But in terms of the broader issue, I'm just praying that the church will have wisdom and discernment that will speak truth with love courageously within our society and that we don't let ourselves get bogged down in disputes but somehow uh, are able to rise above and ensure that our debates and dialogues in our society are civil. There's mutual respect. There is respect for conscience and that we sort out where the, the line should be drawn and do that well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I thought about the, the freedom of conscience piece, I think a lot about, you know, some of Paul's words when he's talking about those who are strong in faith and those who are weak in faith. And it's that same sort of idea that there's some who like in their conscience felt that eating the, the meat sacrificed to idols, while they might have known deep down that like, it's probably fine if I eat it, it's, it's okay to eat this meat. Deep down in their conscience, they were like, I just, I feel sick about it. And I might be wrong, but at this time, I, I, feel, I feel sick about it. I think that Paul's words to us to like, you know, to bear with that person and, and to allow them to operate in their conscience, like in the same way that someone who may struggle with, you know, maybe there was alcoholism in their family growing up. And then if they get invited to go for drinks and they just struggle with that, you know, with, with all that stuff that it brings. I think the scriptures help bring us to a place of love for that person and say, you know, the best way I can love you right now is to respect your conscience. And that person might come to a place later on where they're actually like, you know what, I struggled that long time with drinking, but I've come to a place now where they can. But that's, that's an example of bearing with someone in their conscience. And I feel like that's something that's being lost right now because like you mentioned with the, the choice piece, it's, I think as Christians, we still have to be like, look, either side, because I know people on both sides, unvaccinated, vaccinated, there's going to be people who are struggling in their conscience. And I think that that's where it gets, it gets tricky because Paul would say that's a law unto Christ, right? Like it's for people to say, well, I'm going to make you do this against your conscience. Then, you know, if, if it's a church saying that, that gets tricky because well, they would say, well, Christ is the one who's influencing my conscience. And so I think we have to have a lot of care and tenderness to that issue right now. And, and maybe not a lot, enough people had really thought through that. No, and, and again, that's where the idea of conscience usually is where you're you feel compelled by your beliefs to do something, or, or usually it's understood negatively, compelled by your beliefs not to do something. Whereas, again, the, the promotion of choice in our society is just that freedom, human dignity resides in choice. So you need to maximize the choice everyone has. And so that's sometimes where conscience and choice conflict, right? Because conscience is sometimes a break on you know, a range of choices that says some of those choices are, are not appropriate for you, not good for you. So that's where they they conflict. And so in the theoretical literature, conscience or choice are kind of set opposed to one another. But I think underneath it all for Christians, I mean, that's the secular debate. Underneath it all for Christians, and you've commented on it, it's really we are slaves to Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. So what does freedom mean for us? And it actually means that we are free not to do things that we think are otherwise perhaps appropriate for ourselves. 
and we're free to do things that will serve others, even though it may not be in our self-interest to do those kind of things. So we're free to love our neighbors and do things that loving our neighbors requires. Uh, so uh, as you just alluded to earlier, we have that freedom. And are we using that freedom well? And I think that's probably what the last couple of years we've learned a lot about is what does it mean to be free and how do we serve our neighbors well and how do we express the love of Christ properly uh, in a way that can be understandable and would reach out to others and not put barriers in our way. So I'm, you know, in that sense, I'm free to do what I think is required of me to love my neighbor well. And that puts a whole different frame on the freedom of conscience versus choice. Well, as a, as a follower of Jesus, where's my freedom take me? I think also more broadly, for me, especially when I deal with conscience and issues of choice and how they're framed within our society, I remember uh, reading a, a book about, um, oh, just a second, I'll, Jacques Ellul. The book was The New Demons. So he's a French philosopher, wrote a lot of books on propaganda and so on. And he was engaged in the World Council of Churches, and he's seeing the growing secularization of Western Europe, North America, and so on. And, and he, in a post book, he talked about religious freedom. And normally we think about religious freedom as kind of a defensive engagement to protect a scope of our freedoms as Christians, right? So we can live out our faith with integrity and not be told we can't live out our faith and bear public witness to what we believe. He kind of spun that around and said, uh, you only have religious freedom if you really understand what you believe. So for him, the advocacy for religious freedom isn't as much about a defensive measure to protect our freedoms as people of faith, but it's actually to help our neighbors understand what they actually believe. Because only if they understand what they believe can they really be religiously free to continue to believe what they believe or to change their beliefs. So the more thought you've given into what you believe, what your doctrines are, what you don't believe in, then you, in a sense you have religious freedom to make those determinations. But if you're not aware of what you believe, then do you really have religious freedom? So it, it reminded me that part of our task in a pluralized secular society and part of how we speak into that society is to try to begin disclosing and helping other people distill what exactly they believe. Why do they follow this ideology or that ideology? Why do they pit conscience versus choice? Those kind of questions you know, drive down to our core understandings of the principles that shape our lives, that guide our lives. And I think that's where we need to have that more robust conversation. So I'd like to, you know, there's ways to take the contemporary controversies over vaccines and mandates and so on and start peel back the layers of the onion and say, okay, what does sovereignty mean? What does conscience mean? How do you determine that? When are your buttons pushed? What's causing them to be pushed? And how do we define and identify that? And how do we contrast them to the freedom we have in Christ, right? So I think that's where part of our, our task is as Christians to read our, our society, to understand that it is religiously plural. So it's Paul back you know, in Acts and talking about witnessing to others and saying, you are very religious people. You have a number of gods you believe in. Let's begin talking about your gods. And let me tell you about who I worship and serve. And can we you know, distill the conversation down to that point? It's difficult work uh, because a lot of people don't think they believe in anything or they claim to be a-religious. But something, if they were once religious and now they're a-religious or non-religious, 
something's filled that void. And I think that's where, as people of faith, we can engage in a conversation with others, kind of uh, moving kind of beyond or above the politics and engage in conversations of faith and have kind of like that interfaith dialogue and ask the good questions to kind of pierce below people's stances, their rhetoric, and understand at their gut level, what is their aspiration? What's their understanding of human flourishing? What do they understand to be the good life, a life worth living? Then compare and contrast whether their gods and idols can satisfy that uh, in contrast to Jesus. Yeah, you, you mentioned something there, which is everyone makes religious claims, right? Like, you know, they'll be like, don't push your religion on me. I'm a religious. But the moment they start speaking, ironically, they're now pushing their a religion on you. Yeah. And uh, I think also understanding that helps uh, in the dialogue. Just to say, you know, you, you talked about Ottawa and the, the, the demonstrations there right now. And you see on both sides, I mean, there's just, it's like night and day, you, you, what they think's happening, right? So what's underneath that? You know, how do they understand, why are some willing to, you know, take their trucks and park in downtown Ottawa and honk their horns and, and protest? And why do others see that as, as so harmful, insidious to democracy and uh, to freedom? Why this clash over choices and over freedom? I think we can only begin to understand if we delve down into the animations, the motivations of, of those uh, engaged on, on all sides of the issue to understand what is it they hold fundamentally true and important and how they see that as being threatened or compromised and, and how do we express that well? Because that's going on in both sides, all, all sides of this debate. Yeah. Well, Bruce, thank you for being here with us and you know we look forward to having you on this program again because I, I feel like there'd be you know it'd be interesting to be able to have this conversation a few months from now see how things have changed how is our culture doing how is canada doing you know spiritually and um and, and philosophically politically all that stuff there'd be a, a lot to talk about uh, and it's really i think refreshing to talk about canada because so often uh we we hear about stuff in the united states and so i appreciate you coming on and being able to reflect on canada so thanks again thank you Pleasure to be with you. Hey, well, thank you again, Bruce, for being on the program. And in particular, I was really enjoying our conversation, especially on the pieces of conscience and how to think through those things uh, and actually also make distinctions between choice and conscience and, and how those things are playing out in our society right now. Really helpful. There's so much further we could go. If you want to find more resources from EFC, you can actually head to their website, evangelicalfellowship.ca. And there's a lot of articles Bruce was mentioning that are on there for you to go deeper and to be thinking through a lot of the stuff that we talked about today. So thank you for listening and take care out there. All the best. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. In Doubt is a ministry that exists to engage young people with biblical truth and provide answers for many of today's questions of life, faith, and culture. Through audio programs, articles, and blogs, InDoubt reaches out to encourage, strengthen, and disciple young adults. To check out all the resources of InDoubt, visit indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S. 
Or if you're in a position or share a passion for the ministry of young people, you can support the ongoing mission of engaging a new generation with the truth of the Bible. First, you can pray for this ministry. And second, and if you are able, please consider a financial gift by visiting indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S. Your gift of any amount is such a blessing and an answer to prayer. Thanks.